Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Key West, Florida. I hope you are all well. Uh, I am pleased to welcome Dan Allen, who is the Senior Vice President of Advancement and External Relations at DePaul University, coming in live from his office in Chicago. Great to be with you, Brent. Thank you. I'm jealous. Uh, Key West sounds lovely. I, I love Chicago, but Key West sounds really great this time of year. They are both charming in their own special ways for sure. Uh, Dan, I look forward to learning about your uh, history in the sector, what's going on at DePaul right now, uh, and then your thoughts going forward uh, in this post-pandemic context that we are just on the cusp of, uh, I think, all experiencing. But I want to start, I love finding out from my guests more about your own college journey. Uh, and in your case, I'm particularly interested because young Dan Allen was considering Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa, about an hour southeast of where I grew up. And for those of you listening to the podcast, you know we have been overrepresented on Iowans, uh, and I apologize for that. But tell me about Dan in high school and what led you to go to Loris. So I was an unremarkable high school basketball player and had the opportunity to um, be recruited, I guess, by some small schools, and I wanted to continue to play basketball. So that that was one. Two, I I wanted a school. And let's be honest, when you, when it comes to original mascots, the Dewhawk, the Loris Dewhawk is is original. It, it, terribly original. Not not necessarily why I chose Loris, but absolutely an original mascot. Um, great academic reputation and a place that that fit my interests. Um, had the the major that I wanted at the time, an English literature major, and um, it, it it worked really well for me. Uh, great great memories, friends, faculty members. My my time there um, was was memorable in so many ways, and most importantly, met my wife there. Um, so Loris is a special place for me. Well, it's just totally coincidental. But on this trip, uh, my one of my youngest cousins, Ben, runs cross country at Florida Gulf Coast University. He grew up in Dubuque and his parents, my aunt Amy and her husband, Greg, uh, met at Loris College in the mid 90s. And so I remember one of my first times on a college campus was going and visiting my aunt Amy and, and meeting her then boyfriend, Greg. And uh, I just saw them, you know, a, a week ago, two weeks ago. And so uh, great Loris uh, connection recently, but I would imagine most people at Loris College are not there thinking, I'm here because it's my ticket to advancement leadership. And so when along the way, did you even realize that this was a career path that existed? Uh, and what was your first exposure to the sector? Now, I'm still figuring out if it's a career path. I, I hope I'm on the right path, but it's a it's a day-to-day -day journey. Um, so one of my uh, most important mentors in, in life is the current president of Loris College, Jim Collins. We knew each other as friends. Uh, we were actually roommates. We were, we were in each other's weddings. And um, so part of that college basketball story um, was that I had dreams of being a college basketball coach. So finished my undergraduate degree at Loris stayed on to serve as a graduate assistant for the men's basketball team while working on my, my master's degree. Uh, my head coach was a guy called Brad Soderberg, and, and I worked as a GA for Brad. Brad's now an assistant at UVA, won the national championship last year with UVA. Um, 
I had one interview for, for a job as a college basketball coach and the light bulb went on and I realized that this was not how I wanted to spend the, the rest of my life. And um, came back to Dubuque, was was living with Jim, we we're roommates at the time, and I said, I'm going to, you know, get prepared to pack up, go home, figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And he said, well, be, you know, before you do that, um, come talk to me, because there's a job opening in the admissions office at Loris, and I think you'd be great for it. And I, I'd encourage you to apply and go through the process. So I did that, and uh, was fortunate enough to be given an opportunity to work in admissions at Loris. I, I recruited students from south side of Chicago in the western suburbs. And um, again, Jim uh, recognized something in me that I never recognized in myself. And he said, I, I think you would be great in our advancement office. And there was an opportunity to do some things with our annual fund. And um, I'd encourage you again, put your put your name in the hat and go for it. And, and it worked out. And, and from there started the, the journey in, in uh, fundraising. So it was really, I love it. Morris, yeah, just really, I, I love it. Well, what a neat, uh, what a neat story. And we'll make sure to share this with, with Jim, because I know he'll appreciate that walk down memory lane. I got to ask when you think about your time on the enrollment and admission side of things, I mean, what stands out, you know, there are two primary revenue generators for most of our partners. It is enrollment and it is, it, it is advancement. And frankly, it tends to be more enrollment driven for most institutions, increasingly so. Um, so what stands out just in that in that experience? What was it like day to day? Yes, it's a grind, right? And, and, and you know, those of us who work at tuition-driven institutions can't and shouldn't say thank you enough to our colleagues on the enrollment and admission side. Um, that, you know, the work that, that happens there, and, and, you know, look, I was I was starting, uh, you know, such an old guy, you know, literally paper, you know, that the cards that students would fill out at college fair. So the digital part of the world was was not even remotely close to our strategy. Um, and so you're, you know, going from school to school and, and, and at night going to college fairs and packing stuff up and sending things out and getting back on the phone when you had phone time in the evening to follow up with students who have applied but hadn't committed mm -hmm. and all of it. It's a, it, it's a real grind. And, and so um, what what I learned in that time, Brent, and, and I think is one of the most invaluable lessons, experiences was the, the ability to think on my feet, right? So you, you were in positions as an admissions officer where the, the questions were different from student to student, family to family, and, and you had to be able to, to respond on your feet um, without hesitation and, 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 and certainly truthfully and in a way that kept the student and her family, his family interested. So, so I, I think that was the, the experience that I took away was the understanding that it's a grind and every day yeah. you get after it and to the, the ability to, to be able to think on your feet. You know, one nuance, I've not worked in the enrollment space uh, at all, really professionally. However, I was a student athlete at Brown University. I played football and I took a lot of pride in hosting recruits. And in fact, I went eight for eight, hosted eight people. We got eight commits. And so that was my closest sort of um, foray into the enrollment world. And there's definitely a different level of competitiveness there. You know, the, the timeframes are so much tighter, right? People are making decisions 
with limited information in a short period of time that are going to govern the rest of their lives. And I really liked that aspect of it. Do you have any experiences where you really felt like there are some great kids from Chicago? There's some great kids who are considering, but they're on the fence. And I've got to outcompete. You named the institution that you were competing with at the time, but did you feel that or was it not as, I don't know, dramatic as I'm making it sound? No, absolutely felt it. And I'm thinking um, right now what comes to mind is more the recruiting I was doing as a graduate assistant for the men's basketball team at at Loris. And and we recruited a number of um, student athletes from Chicago and, and in particular from the, the Catholic League in Chicago. And I, I remember going to games, practices, going to visit with, with students and their families and their homes. And, you know, it, it's a, a small school and, and budget is, is tight, like it is everywhere, but in particular at a smaller place. So we weren't going to games or practices and watching um, students and talking to their families and then spending the night because we had to be back the next day for practice or, or something or a game ourselves. I, I remember making that drive from Chicago and getting home at two, three in the morning sometimes and thinking, how did I, how did I do that? I'm, I'm lucky to be alive, right? You're, you know, you're, you're working all day and at, at one o'clock in the morning, you're driving through the, the hills of Galena and their deer and, and, and everything else. But you did what you had to do because it was so competitive, right? You're right. And, and the need to show those students and their families that you were interested in them being a part of, for me, if part of Loris College, part of our community meant that I had to give everything I possibly could, which meant yeah. a, lot, a lot of car trips at two, three in the morning, getting back home. Yeah. Look, it's also, I think, both in my personal experience as a recruited athlete, and I'm sure you experienced it as well, it's not necessarily about Brown or Loris or the institution as it is about Brent, the host or Phil, the coach or Dan, the coach. And I think that um, what it also stands, it it just makes me really believe in the importance of the human to human relationship. You know, there's a lot of automation and technology and the look, the recruiting world has been transformed by tools like huddle that, you know, my mom had to, burn 50 VHS tapes of my highlight film and ship them. Who knows how she did that to these different coaches. Now it's all fully digital. Um, And so if anything, there's more information and it's even more competitive today because of of that availability of information. But that's where I just think what really is going to help you stand out at this point, whether it's in student athlete recruitment, broader enrollment efforts, or certainly fundraising is that human element. Um, and, and I think that that's something that is certainly transferable to the advancement world. No doubt. So I would say it's, it's about being present in, in a human way. So it doesn't necessarily always mean being nose to nose with somebody in person, but being present, you know, over the, the phone, on social media, email, in video, that there are a lot of ways now that we have, we, we have the ability to be present but we have to do it in a, in a personalized way so that the, the folks with, with whom we're working, whether it's on the enrollment side or recruiting in athletics or in our world in advancement, that, that they understand we care about them first as human beings and we're willing to put the effort in to be present um, to them, for them, and, and with them um, in whatever channel. I think you're absolutely right in that regard. 
So let's talk about your transition. Uh, once Jim Collins made the recommendation to consider the development job, um, what it was like going from the enrollment world and the athletics world um, where the cycle is basically a year long, right? I mean, you essentially want to raise awareness freshman, sophomore year, junior year, get them to really consider it, senior year, get them to apply, and then they got to make a decision quickly. Whereas on the other side, the advancement world, you're talking about 50, 60, 70 year lifetime relationships. It's a very different um, context. I imagine given how well you knew the institution, it was a somewhat straightforward transition, but um, what stood out when you went from one office to the other? My transition was was a little bit easier in that regard, Brent, because I went into the annual fund, which is a year to year thing, right? And so it is a, we're, we're starting off whenever our fiscal year ends and you've got that year to, to bring it in, donors and dollars and all the rest of it. So um, it, that lends itself really nicely to a competitive, um, a competitive personality because you can see at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month or quarter, you know, are the numbers adding up and you, you hit reset when the fiscal year ends and you, you get to do it all over again. So my transition was, was smoothed in that regard because I entered into, into that fray, um, the annual fund fray that is. And then I was allowed to, to transition from that because I had some leadership level annual fund prospects that I had to solicit gifts for, which then allowed me to get some exposure to the, the pace at which you, you um, engage with an individual donor from a leadership level annual fund gift to a major gift to uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I had a nice transition in that way because I, I had a foot in both, both bodies of water. And you must have done a pretty good job because ultimately it led to a to a leadership role. Yeah, I hope I hope so. I you know I I think I've been doing okay, um, but but I it really is a it's a journey. I, I I every single day I learn something new or I make a mistake that somebody calls out that, um, that I, I learn from. Right. So uh, even to this day, I know I could do better, and and there there's more for me to learn. So. Um, so far, but you so did have the you did have the opportunity to serve as vice president at Loris, and um, you know that had to be um, a, a neat experience, having you know started and, and evolved uh, and learned along the way, as you've described. Uh, I want to know a little bit about just like the highlights when you think back your time at, at Loris. Really, any highlights that stand out, but then also what it was like to move on from your alma mater, where you knew it so well. Um, and I think this is somewhat common where, where somebody starts at their alma mater. Um, and, and that's an easy mission to sell because you benefited from it. You know, all the people, the faculty, the staff, the buildings, all of the terminology, the fight song. And then you think about the business of fundraising more broadly and um, pursuing career opportunities uh, elsewhere. So I'd love to just know about the highlights and then what led you to, to make that consideration. Yeah, two, two things come to mind. One is a, a, a much smaller gift that uh, evolved into a, a larger, more meaningful relationship and, and, and uh, investment in the college. And it's when I was in the annual fund and uh, was, was literally sitting at my desk and it was the, you know, the dialing for dollars time where you're, you're going through your list and I'm calling and calling and I made a phone call to somebody to ask them to increase to our leadership level annual giving 
society, which at the time was $1,000. And uh, the person, it, you know, within a second of me getting the ask out uh, said, sure, I'll do that. And, you know, he sort of caught my breath, you know, 20 some years old. And he said, I, I bet that's the easiest call you've made all day. And I said, yeah, pr pretty much. That, that, was, that was great. And he said, I'm happy to do it, et cetera. And again, sort of the thinking on my feet, um, training from admissions, um, I immediately said, well, this, you know, this is really terrific. Rather than sending you your receipt in, in the mail, I, I'd love to hand deliver it to you. So um, when I get this, can I come down and see you and thank you in person and bring you the receipt? And he said, that, that's terrific. I'd love, to, I'd love to do that, Dan. Um, and so that led to the beginning of a relationship that ended up in this person eventually becoming a member of the board at the college and, and making a seven-figure commitment. Not when I was there. Um, I, I can't claim um, credit for that, but it, I remember that being the beginning of his philanthropic journey. So, um, so that sticks out. The Dan, can I just comment? First of all, that's amazing, right? Because we always talk about the lifetime journey and, and the implications that the annual fund could have on future major gift pipeline, but it's generally fairly nebulous in the way that that's described. Having a real example where if you hadn't picked up the phone that day or if you'd called one fewer per people and, and uh, that gentleman might not have ended up getting engaged, might not be a trustee of the university. So the, the, the question though is how often is that not happening? How many missed opportunities must there be where we are just sending now the electronic receipt? We're not even you know, connecting with the person after the call. And that's, you know, an area that we just see a lot of opportunity where, you know, certain parts of the annual fund have become so automated and so almost transactional, including we're in the middle of giving day season. What is the equivalent in 2021 of Dan going down and getting to know the person after a relatively modest donation? Yeah, so important, Brent. Thanks for bringing that up. So, the I don't know if there is an equivalent or a replacement, right? So we we talk a lot at DePaul about the the importance of noticing when somebody has made a significant increase in their annual gift, noticing when a certain gift threshold is met is met on the annual giving side, and that. Uh, triggering a, 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 an appropriate response from us. And so that, that means sitting at your desk and picking up the phone and making a call and saying, hey, Brent, you know, I just wanted to take a couple minutes. I just saw that you made your first gift at this level to DePaul. Thanks a lot. That, that means a lot. And, you know, at some point uh, would love to, to chat more about that. Encouraging the dean of a, of a, of a particular college or school if, if that gift was designated for a specific area to do the same thing. Um, so I don't think you can replace the phone call and the face-to-face -face visit, but, but what we've been doing um, as much as we can is, is trying to use video and the ThankView platform to, to get some word out via video to folks um, in, in our stewardship strategy. That, that I, I, I love the annual fund. I, I just yep. love the annual fund. It's, such a, it's a space where you can be creative. You can try things and fail. You can try things and succeed. And, and as I said, at the end of the fiscal year, you hit the reset button and you, you do it all over again. But without our colleagues in the annual fund laying that foundation, the work that we do on the, 
the major gift and principal gift side wouldn't be possible. It's so important. Look, I couldn't agree more. And I think that this is an area that is still wide open from an innovation perspective. I feel like there are things we can do better to support this work. I'm actually catching up with uh, J.D. Beebe, who's the CEO at ThankFew in two hours, where we're going to talk more about uh, some of the concepts that I think you just hinted at, which is what is the 2021 version of Dan uh, going and visiting somebody after a meaningful indication of a desire to be more engaged? And then how do we make sure that that doesn't get lost in the shuffle or that we aren't just um, just relying on the giving day or the phone-a-thon or whatever it may be to um, build those relationships um, long-term? So uh, really cool stuff. So that was um, certainly a neat highlight to share. But then ultimately, uh, you decided to look elsewhere um, and, uh, and take your talents to Lewis College. Yeah. So, so two things about that interesting, um, uh, I guess the context is I was living, so I left Loris um, and took an opportunity in, in the Chicago area, actually in my hometown in Joliet and um, was living there and, and uh, was working at Joliet Catholic uh, Academy at the time. And that's when Jim Collins called and asked me to come back and serve as vice president. And uh, he said, and, and I've already, talk to some some folks, namely the, the board, and I think we can make this work with you living in in the Chicago area and coming back to campus on a on a consistent basis. But the you know the gist of your your responsibility is going to be out seeing people and soliciting gifts. This was this was when Dan? Uh, this would have been in the what would this be the late 90s, early 2000s? So you were doing remote work way before it was cool. Yeah, but not not like this. I was right. you know, I was back in the car driving to, so I'd drive to Dubuque and spend a few days on campus in meetings and meeting with my team and and then a couple days from, from home and then a week or so, a month on the road seeing people. Um, and it got to, you know, my family was growing and, and it got to be a lot being away. And, and I also didn't feel as though, Brent, I was I was serving the college as well as I could because I wasn't as present as, as I should have been. Um, and so Lewis is, you know, 15, 20 minutes away from, um, from where I was living. And at the time, um, again, with Jim's um, uh, uh, support and, and really encouragement, I had decided to pursue my doctoral degree at Loyola University. And so being at Lewis closer to home family doctoral degree in Chicago, it, it was uh, really an ideal transition for me, um, but, a, but a difficult one, leaving your alma mater, a place that, that, that meant a lot to you. Now there was, uh, you know, it was another Catholic institution, so there was some alignment, uh, certainly from a mission perspective, but when you think about your time there and then the ensuing opportunities, um, what stands out most? Because it had to be, yeah, challenging, right? I mean, it's a whole new set of terminology, culture, buildings, you, you, you name it, um, and you've got to sell it with the same vigor and passion that, um, that you had for Loris, which I'm sure is hard to, um, you know, it, it's not easy to generate that. That's right. So, uh, you know, I would say I, I was pretty choosy in that regard. I, you know, I, I in, intentionally was looking at Lewis and was fortunate enough to have the opportunity because I knew, I knew enough about the university that its mission and the work that it was doing was aligned with what I was interested in, in my value. So, um, so that, you know, it wasn't as challenging to, to sell, but very different than your alma mater. I, you know, the one thing that is, is underestimated for me in the transition was because Jim's a friend, uh, 
we, you know, it, it was sort of that you could communicate without using words. And, and I knew how to read him. He knew how to read me. I knew what he wanted. I knew when he was upset. I knew when he wanted something different. And, and, and so then you transition into working with a new president where you don't have that same synergy. That, that was probably for me, Brent, the, the biggest learning curve um, was learning how to work with a president who wasn't your buddy. And, and uh, you, you didn't have that same kind of um, ability to read nonverbals. Got it. Um, you spent a few years there. You're pursuing the PhD. Just tell me about the, uh, the PhD experience. It's not that common among advancement leaders, challenges, recommendations. What are your reflections on it? So it was the, the, the dumbest thing that I did and, and one of the best things I did. I, I, you know, I was doing it with a family. And so, uh, again, more time away, uh, particularly during the dissertation uh, stage. I, I was up at 4 a.m. doing writing because that was the time that I could get when it was quiet before, you know, all the family activity started. So, it, you know, that too was a grind, um, you know, and you're I don't know what I was in my 30s, 40s at the time doing that with the family. It was tough, um, but a really enriching experience for me in stepping outside of the advancement space, becoming a student again, engaging with material that was never a part of my um, my formal education, my my undergraduate or my master's degree program. So that so that was really invigorating. Um, and, and I did it because I, you know, I had made a decision to be in higher education. I knew then that, you know, in some way, shape or form, I wanted my career to be in a college or university setting. And I felt it was important to go through the experience and, and to have the credentials and to, to demonstrate to our faculty colleagues that uh, I was willing to and, and capable of doing the work to earn the degree. I, I wrote a couple papers that I presented at, at conferences, academic conferences with my dissertation chair. So I, I wanted to, again, have that experience, understand what the grind of being a faculty member was like as well, um, so that I had a better appreciation for that um, in, in my roles. And Dan, your dissertation was titled The Locus of Preparation and Privilege, College Choice and Social Reproduction. And I was reading a little bit about the abstract before this, and it really struck me because um, essentially you're, you're talking about the disconnect between the, the vision or the suggestion that higher education can help level the playing field. Um, but when you really dig into it by uh, income and socioeconomic a status, that's not necessarily the case. And you specifically went back to the enrollment world and looked at data uh, relating to academically qualified students applying or, or, or succeeding at highly selective colleges, but those people came from low-income families. And, and, you know, candidly, I'm a first-generation college student. I went to Brown, uh, totally um, uh, benefited from financial aid and mentorship, um, and I think sometimes, honestly, my experience with, with higher ed was so positive that it maybe skews me um, to assume that it is that experience for many people. So I'd love to just talk a little bit about the, the takeaways from your dissertation, um, because I imagine there's an element at the intersection of both enrollment, but also advancement and the role that advancement might play in creating a not as level playing field all the time, um, while at the same time, the mission being 
more access. So, you know, there's a lot there, but what, what were the main takeaways from that work? Yeah, so, so what I was interested in, Brent, it, um, was what is influencing a, a group of, of academically talented, well-prepared students on their uh, path to deciding where to apply, where they're admitted, and where they eventually enroll. It, with, with the thought that there are students who are not gaining access to, to institutions that they are qualified to study at and that they would do really well at. And, and I wanted to understand why that wasn't happening. And, and here I don't, I don't mean to suggest that um, the only place that you can get a terrific education is at the, you know, the so-called elite institutions. I, I don't mean to suggest that at all, um, because we know that there are remarkable institutions there who don't fit that profile, who do that, that do amazing work and that are academically rigorous and provide opportunities. But what I was, what I was trying to get at was why is it provided to some segment of student access that is in those opportunities to some segment of students, but not these students? And what, what's happening along the way there that's influencing their decisions? Because the, 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 the research would, would suggest that students who do enroll at and, and are studying at these better resources, to, by, by definition, more elite institutions, tend to do better. They tend to, to retain at, at higher percentages because the resources are there. They're surrounded by other um, uh, equally as, as talented students and, and sort of, you know, everybody's rising up and, and achieving at the same level. And so why is that not happening for these students? So that's what I was interested in. And, and then I started to reflect upon, well, what, what role do we play as, a, as an industry in, in either smoothing that out to make sure those opportunities happen or creating cliffs that, that certain folks have to, to climb up. And, and so I, I think it's both and, Brian. I think, I think we do amazing work in our industry and in providing those opportunities and providing experiences that change life trajectories. And yet we could still do better. We, we know yep. that, we still do better. And I think that's the challenge to us is how can we do better? And then for us in advancement, what role can philanthropy play to help, you know, reduce the, the, uh, the climb on that cliff, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then it had to be fascinating doing all of that work and then joining UChicago at a time that was so exciting at UChicago. Uh, Jim Nondorf is a friend of mine and, and to see the work that he was accomplishing from an admissions and enrollment perspective when you joined UChicago and UChicago being the type of institution, I don't know your exact exposure given your, your focus in the public policy school, but UChicago was one of those institutions that certainly was going through a real transformation at that, at that time. Right, Nondorf does great work and, and um, was, was really behind a lot of the strategy there that shifted from UChicago being a place that if you're here, it's because you know about us. And if you don't know about us, you don't belong here kind of attitude to no, 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 that's not right. We, we, we have to go out and, and reach students and, and reach those families who 
should know about University of Chicago because they would thrive here and communicate with them and encourage them to, to be a part of the, the campus. And, uh, and Nondorf was behind that. So it was really exciting. I was at the policy school where uh, another one of my, my life mentors, uh, the, the dean, Colm uh, Omeritic, was, uh, was my fundraising partner um, and uh, was really a, a special influential time for me being, being a part of that, uh, that university. What are the highlights? Because, you know, very different context, certainly than, uh, you know, small Catholic education to um, just the level of uh, uh, just the level that, that you Chicago is playing at. It's just different environment. What, what stood out as a highlight? Yeah, the, the, the university is bold in its thinking. There is almost nothing that um, you could imagine that they wouldn't try to find a way to make happen. Right. So, so when, when, when it thinks of what its role is to society, what its, what its place in the world is, it, it thinks without, um, without limits, right? And thinks about the, the possibilities uh, without regard to obstacles that could be in the way. And, and that, that was influential, right? Is that, that uh, the, the need to not inhibit your thinking and, and to, to get through hurdles, to get through obstacles um, and, and to think boldly about what could be done, that, that, that stands out. And, and certainly what stands out is, um, you know, I remember being, being instructed early on that it's really important that, that you speak up and, and have an opinion because if you don't, people here are gonna think that you're, you're not really with us. So, you know, you're expected to speak your mind there. You're expected to engage in rigorous uh, debate about whatever it is. And, and that, was, that was really a refreshing way to, to approach work. Love it. Ultimately led uh, for the opportunity to the opportunity for you to join uh, DePaul just up the street. Uh, and, um, you know, you're in a leadership role now, having gone through the pandemic. I know that you and your team have had to do some really focused work to rally support um, around student support for the pandemic. Um, back to your point of just what else can we do better? Uh, I'm sure this was a challenging period, but what are, um, what are some of the highlights and, and maybe even lowlights if you're comfortable sharing just over the last year? Yeah, so, so the, the sh let me start with the, the change from Chicago to DePaul was, was one in, in which the, the, the research and the eminence of UChicago and, and the, the work of its faculty, the scholarship was, was paramount. Um, and that's, that's terrific. The, the, the world needs universities like that in the landscape of higher education in the United States. DePaul is decidedly different. And that's not to suggest that our faculty aren't doing really amazing and important research, but the focus here is on our students, right? And, and it's on what, what, what we talked about as it relates to my dissertation and, and the teaching and the providing of opportunities that for students and their families are, are going to be life-changing. And, and I found that that was much better aligned with where I wanted to be in my career and, and what animated me as a, as a person in this work was, was that more student-centric uh, approach. And so the, you know, the highlights to your question directly, Brent, is that in the pandemic, the, the board of trustees, and so now we're going back a year, right, when 
right around this time when it was really dire and, and the conversation in our, in our world was around higher education fundraising being down 20, 25% and who knows what it's going to look like. Our board said that that's unacceptable. We, we are serving students who need us now more than they've ever needed us. And, and so even in the best of economies, DePaul has a special obligation to provide scholarships, financial assistance, to provide the resources to, to grant access and opportunity. And, and we knew that with the pandemic, it was gonna be even more challenging for them. And so the board said, we are going to raise it just as much next year in the pandemic as we raised this year. And at that time we were on, on track to have the second most successful fundraising here in DePaul's history. So we had a, we had a high hurdle to clear. Um, and so uh, that's a highlight for me, Brent, I have to say is the, the university leadership collectively coming together around the importance of helping our students stay on track towards a degree during a, a most extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging time. Um, and we've been successful. We're, we, we've raised uh, over $87 million this year and, and our number of donors and our number of alumni donors are at five-year highs. We had a, a remarkable all-time high in our Blue Demon Challenge, which is our day of giving that, you know, Tracy Crawl, Sarah Mikeson, and, and that team did remarkable work on our Blue Demon Challenge day. So, so that, that's really a highlight for me. Um, it, it, one of the most important years I've had in this work in my life, really. And you got a quarter to go here. I mean, we're not even through uh, the end of March here yet. And so to have that kind of success uh, during uh, what has been a challenging backdrop is inspiring. And I also think it helps um, support some of what we've been seeing in the sector, which is while the disruption on campus was, was uh, unparalleled and the initial reaction of the public markets and the labor markets was really acute and negative, the reality is that we're sitting here a year later since the pandemic began. And while there's been uh, uh, tremendous tolls in, in lives and health, and uh, there have been tremendous tolls on Main Street businesses, the reality is real estate is at an all-time high. The public markets are at all-time highs. The private markets are all at all-time highs. Bitcoin is at an all-time high. Every asset class has, um, has improved over the last year. And... I think that there are different, um, there have been some, I think fundraising shops caught a little bit deer in headlights, um, just, just around, let's be patient. Let's, let's not push this year. Um, I think on the other hand, there have been groups like yours where the sites were raised, where the board said, we're not sitting back. Our mission and the need of our mission is more on display than ever. Let's, let's push forward. And now you see, the wealth creation that's happened over the last year, how do you kind of balance the, the real challenges on Main Street um, with the fact that your core top of pyramid donor population is doing really, really well? So we, we're seeing um, growth at all giving levels, which is really what's inspiring to me. So we, we Why is that? Because that bucks every narrative and trend that you would see in any consultant presentation, case presentation. Dollars are up, donors are down, the decline continues forever, unabated. 
but it's like, no, we can actually turn it around and do better across the giving pyramid. So what's the secret? Yeah. So I, I'm not, I don't know if it's a secret as much as it is. We, we were and we got and remained hyper-focused on our case. It was about students. It was about students. It was about students. And, and just as this pandemic has affected you and in your livelihood and your families, this is how it's affecting our students and they need you. They need all of us. And, and so we didn't say that we wouldn't, of course, accept a gift for something unrelated to our students. Of course, if that was the, the donor intent, we followed it. But we, we stayed on message, Brent, and, um, and, and we implemented that across all of our, um, all of our strategies at all of our gift levels. And, and so I think it speaks to the, the importance of and, and the power of the message, but also a reminder, I think about what, what is it that we do? What is it that we're all about? And, and in the end, it's about our students, right? Even, even at places that have amazing research agendas, uh, it, it, this industry is still, I think, all about our students. And when we come back to that and, and say we get it and we need, to, we need to rally around them, people respond. People are generous. We know that, right? This is a really generous country um, and, and we have amazing alumni and, and parents and friends of the university. The city is, a, is an amazingly generous city, the city of Chicago, that is. So to me, it's a reminder of the importance of getting back to what it's all about. Well, I, I agree, but I also think back to your experience as a uh, recent college grad doing recruiting. And I think that there is an element of how do we bring the tenacity and that, um, that competitive approach across the giving pyramid. Um, you know, somebody once said some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen and others make it happen. That was Michael Jordan. And that's the poster you have behind you, but I think it's fitting uh, because everybody wants the annual fund to improve. And some people wish it would, but then some people are actually doing it, not just the annual fund across the giving pyramid. Um, so yes, I've been reading that poster and I've been waiting for the opportunity to work it in. How'd I do? So, yeah, look, um, we, we have worked really hard. I, I don't, you know, I don't mean to suggest that this has happened magically because we've, you know, we've got a great story and we, um, you know, we, we got back to what it's all about. That's important, but, but the team has, has really worked hard. And, and from the beginning, we said, we're not going to back off. We, we just are not going to retreat to our corner, get into the fetal position, you know, hope for the best, hope, hope this passes, do the best we can. That, that, that just was not a posture we were about to, to accept. And, and um, the, the message was, if we don't raise as much as we did last year, it, it sure as hell isn't going to be because we didn't try, right? It, yep. I, I, for one, couldn't look our families and our students in the eyes in the midst of all of this and, sa and say, you know, we, we just had to wait and see how things were going to go. We had to get after it. We had to get after it. And, Love it. and, we, and the poster was... That, that was the, in our control room, if you will, on Blue Demon Challenge Day. Um, and so I was here, you know, and went into the room and, and you know, 
the TV monitors that were up and all the things that the the team was was checking on throughout the evening. That that poster was in there. I said I love that. I absolutely love that poster. I, I love Michael Jordan. Um, I, I, I do think he's the greatest of all time. I I love LeBron and Kobe, but Jordan's the greatest. So the next morning I came into the office and the annual giving team they they all autographed it. So that's, that's I love it. Jordan. There we go. The uh, well. We asked you in advance, where is the advancement industry over-investing? And you said print materials and big events. Why do you feel that way? I, I think they don't allow us the level of personalization that's that's really essential. I, I think it's, it's all... Uh, and they're expensive. And they're expensive. So it's a combination of limited personalization and cost relative to maybe other things that we'll be able to do in the future, can do right now. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, look, I, I'm sure our CFO and our president wouldn't want to hear me saying this, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I'm willing to spend money on things that work and things that are making a difference. So even if it's expensive, if the return is, is going to be demonstrated, sure. I'm, I'll spend the money. So it, it's more to me, Brent, about do, do those two channels allow us to, to have a, 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 a personal experience with our, our constituencies? And here, I, you know, look, I, I have to say, I have to point out that the work that you and your team are doing to help us in that regard is really, really important. And, and I can't say enough about your platform and, and your team and, and the ability to help us understand where and how to personalize messages so that um, we can have a greater impact. You, you, you do great work in this space. And, and I think this is this is an area that we can learn from our our peers in the for-profit, not for-profit um, higher education necessarily, but in, in the business world, they do this really well and we better learn from it. Absolutely. So the other area we asked you about was where are we underinvesting? And you said getting in front of major donors face-to-face. And I want to know what you meant by that. So I, I, I get concerned, and, and that's probably a, a visceral reaction to this last, you know, year, you know, 12 to 14 months where um, there's there's been a slide, I think, to the the use of technology and, and, yep. and it's working and it's working and, and we've seen advantages and it's it's going to be here to stay. And and I what I meant by that, Brent, was to be sure that we don't conflate making it work in a crisis with it works really well. And this is where we need to yep. be. In. Like those are so let's things. talk about that. Cause I might debate you a little bit on it and, and time will tell, but, but what I've been suggesting is that there are going to be certain areas where the face-to-face work is going to be more important than ever before. But I would argue that the advancement sector has been over-investing in low ROI travel as well. And so when I think about where things settle out, um, I think a big chunk of travel that was very inefficient can be shifted to platforms like this or can be engineered by way of other creative uses of video and so forth. And then there are certain things that um, are just not going to be, um, you know, especially the, the, the better or more special the experience is. So as a senior vice president, you've had, I'm sure, countless interactions with donors and trustees and uh, the president and you name it by way of Zoom. And I guess I'm curious um, of, of your view of 
when does it make sense to get in front of donors face-to-face in person in the real world versus when does this work or when might this be even better? Yeah, so great, great observation. I think there, uh, there was and is a, an oper- there, there was um, low ROI travel and an opportunity to address that. Um, so I think that's an, an excellent point. And I think that can be addressed through this platform. Um, but yet I still think the data are showing us that the vast majority of the dollars that we raise are coming from a very small percentage of our donor base. And I don't think their expectations have changed much, right? I, mm-hmm. I still think we're, we're largely working with a, a demographic of donor at that, at that highest level that are driving the largest percentage of dollars who still want in-person interaction. And that's where yep. I'm saying we have yep. to, we have to invest there. So, And I would, I would chalk that up in the high ROI travel uh, bucket for sure. But I do think there are going to be hybrid opportunities where perhaps in the future um, you will travel to New York to meet with a donor um, and the president will join via Zoom. So instead of having to plan a month in advance around the schedule and the agenda and the itinerary, you can actually have a much less frictionless opportunity to bat, to marry in-person engagement with a better donor experience because you could bring in the AD or the coach or that dean or the, the student that's benefiting from the scholarship, not just showing them a glossy brochure of the student that they helped, but inviting the student in for five minutes, just like that. So those are areas that I think will be interesting to see how it how it kind of blends going forward. I think that's right. I, and, and yet at the same time, my my experience as I'm, I'm guessing yours has been these pro- probably more in the last three to six months versus early on. When when things open up, whatever that means and looks like, there's going to be a race to. to oh, yeah. Right. And so, yeah. My, my um, guidance would be people are, the, the, the first opportunity they have to close this computer screen and see people in person, they're going to take it. And so I think we want to be mindful of those who say, uh, uh, no, I don't want another Zoom. I can, I'm Zoomed out and get here and let's have lunch, let's have dinner, let's have co- whatever. And yep. then slowly kind of come back to yeah, that that worked before, and I think the examples you gave, zooming in a student, zooming in a faculty member, the the principal investigator on a certain project that a donor is interested in, but they they've got a class they have to teach, so they can't travel, but they can zoom in. I I do think that is definitely going to be a part of it in the future. But I think in the, those initial months after we open up, um, people are are just craving in person interaction. Well, all the analysts are predicting a major, I saw somebody called it uh, COVID revenge travel the other day, where it was just, we just got to get out there. And, um, you know, you, you, I think Airbnb is seeing a, a major increase in bookings even over the last month as the, uh, the vaccine rollouts have accelerated. So I think you're, you're spot on. Uh, and, and the question will be, what's the right balance going forward? And what is the um, you know, what, what is the future of remote work, given that we've all been trained to do it over the last year? What is the future of travel? And um, is it that we get back to 80% the volume that we were doing in the field before? 20%? I'm not sure. We'll, we'll know, you know, we'll have data in a, a year from now, and we'll keep tabs on that for sure. 
Um, but it's just great to be on this journey with, uh, with folks like you that are willing to um, maintain a really high bar and, and push um, while obviously being sensitive to the challenges that your staff and the whole community has, has dealt with over the last year. Um, I, I do have to ask, um, are you hiring? We've had hiring freezes and hiring chills and thaws and all expressions of what is going on with hiring. Where are you all at with, uh, with the fall? We are hiring and we're, we're hiring um, strategically across the university, um, but we are definitely hiring within advancement. The, the president, the board has uh, declared, and, and look, I don't mean to suggest I have a, a blank check here in advancement, but they recognize that as we started the conversation, advancement and enrollment are areas that can generate some revenue for us and, and we need people to, to help us do that. And so uh, we have some open positions now, and and uh, on a case by case basis, I'm I'm able to bring those to the president and and um, make my make my case for for why we need to rehire. So we are hiring at DePaul. Love it. Glad to hear it. Hope to hear that from many of your peers here very very soon. Um, if folks want to stay in touch with you, uh, LinkedIn. I mean, are there other platforms that you prefer? I, I was afraid you were going to ask that. Um, I, I am so I, I'm the the you know the chair of the the Luddite Club here at, at DePaul. Um, so I have LinkedIn, and anybody can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I occasionally look at Twitter, so that's probably not the best place, and that that's about it for me on social media. So reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to do that, but um, also pick up the phone and call me. Um, you're welcome. My, I'm sure my email is on DePaul's website. You're welcome to send me an email um, and, and I will absolutely get back to you. Well, when we publish this episode, I promise that I will tweet it out and I will tag both you and Jim Collins at Loris College and like it or retweet it. I don't want to, you know, just take it easy, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get you there, no doubt. Well, let me, let me know when that happens. Collins is really good on social media. He, All right. He, I'm sure he'll be all over it. I, I may be a bit delayed. All right. Well, Dan, it's great uh, getting to know more about your journey. Uh, really appreciate you taking time. Appreciate the partnership and uh, go do Hawks. Got it. Go do Hawks. Go Blue Demons. Go Blue Demons. All right. Take care. Cheers. Thanks, Brent. Cheers. Cheers.